Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth, and freedom will be defended. You're listening to part two of my chat with former Australian Border Force Commissioner Roman Quadvelic. If you haven't listened to part one, I strongly recommend that you pause this episode and listen to that one first. In this episode, Roman and I discuss the challenges and risks of tackling organised crime as an undercover operative and the very close calls that Roman had in this very role. Now on Protect and Serve. One of the, the greatest of challenges that um, the Australian communities face um, right across Australia in terms of organised crime is that of outlaw motorcycle gangs. A high-ranking comanchero and his brother have been ambushed at an Auburn gym, hit in a hail of bullets, innocent people cowering where they could. Confronting images tonight of injured bikey Sam Abdulrahim from his hospital bed, showing just how close he came to death. Clipping a truck, a gunman loses control and crashes his getaway car in a mad scramble to flee a daytime ambush. He just shot a former Mongols bikey several times. The SUV stolen from a terrified mother and son in Faulkner after a brazen bikey assassination attempt has been found torched and abandoned. You know, I've had experience myself working in South Australia in Operation Avatar, an operation specifically dedicated to policing uh, those gangs, uh, you know, the Gypsy Jokers, the Hells Angels, the Bandidos, the list goes on. Um, what, it takes an awful lot of resilience 
to work in a covert policing role in terms of the challenges and the individuals that you're ultimately trying to hold accountable for their abhorrent behaviour and ultimately generally some extortions, high-level murders, people going missing. It's all incredibly dangerous. It's incredibly challenging and very confronting. That particular part of your policing career what was that experience like tell us about how you fell into that role or did you pursue it in terms of something that you that looked interesting to you to to take part in uh the answers to your latter questions are um i was i was asked to do an undercover role um as i had been doing surveillance and i had changed my appearance to blend into the community more broadly um there was a there was an opportunity some informant in a in a uh in a syndicate it wasn't uh an omcg group or outlaw motorcycle gang group at the time but it was affiliated to they were running a a, a meth trafficking uh, operation between sydney and brisbane here in australia it's um different states it's about 10-hour drive apart, those two cities, and uh, there was a border in between. Um, but we knew that the meth was coming out of uh, Sydney into the Gold Coast. Um, and there was an informant in that group who was, um, for his own benefit, he was trying to get a reduction of sentence, um, was prepared to introduce an undercover agent. Queensland Police undercover unit didn't have any uh, one available, nor did they have anyone that looked suitable so they um, picked me out of the surveillance crew and asked me if I wanted to do it. So I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. I hadn't had that chance before, and it was something that had interested me to your to your um, invited question. Uh, so that was quite a successful operation. We ended up identifying the meth lab here in Western Sydney in a very short space of time. It was a couple of weeks, and I thought, wow, that was, that was fun. Wouldn't mind doing that again. So I gravitated towards that. Um, and you're right, you, you end up living in a, in a diff different world. It's... Um, the, the thing I struggle with the most in that um, was the boundaries are so blurred. Uh, you know what is right and wrong and you know where criminal offences start and stop, uh, but you're acting out a role where you are trying to um, become integrated into the group or the individuals that are your targets this particular milieu, outlaw motorcycle gangs, are quite um, on the edge the way they live, as you've described. Um, you know, they're not particularly civilised. Um, and there's an expectation that anyone who finds their way into that milieu acts the same way. And that's fine. You know, I'd hung around pubs and worked in pubs and I knew the street pretty well, so I was able to adopt the idiolect and the uh, the appearance and the um, the behaviours quite quickly, and that allowed me to sort of blend in. Um, but as I pointed out earlier, that the struggle is um, there in that particular um, context. There's an expectation that if you have an interest in in making your way through the promotional ranks of the group that you engage in particular activities. So you become designated a prospect, as they call it. Mm -hmm. uh, that's someone who is potentially uh, suitable to join the gang. Um, you, don't get an, uh, you don't get an automatic uh, um, membership of the gang. You need to sort of do your time and your apprenticeship. And that apprenticeship involves uh, conducting criminal activities. Now, 
today um, that is a little bit more structured in terms of control operation certificates. You know, you, you in the planning of an undercover operation now, you identify those offences that the operator is likely to commit, and you uh, seek an authority to to do be able to do that. Uh, you act within the boundaries of that. There's um, very, very carefully planned. It's, there's a lot of surveillance around that. There's, there's, there's contingency plans, et cetera, et cetera. Back then, it was a bit of, a bit, bit of the old Wild West. It was just sort of make it up as you go along. Um, <laughs> it really was. Early, you, know, you, you had a controller um, as such, but you know, the controller is usually uh, uh, you know, on the drink or, or asleep. And so you were left to your own devices um, to make those decisions. And you know, ethically, you're a cop, so if as a prospect in the group, you're asked to go and um, assault someone, you know, beat someone up to, to recover a debt or just because they don't like the way the person's looking at them in a pub and they want to test you out and say, hey, go give that bloke a flogging. Yeah, you, you're sort of in a very difficult bind there because you know that if you go over there and start um, assaulting someone that you're committing an offence and you're breaching the oath that you took uh, when you got sworn in, you can rationalise it in the context of, uh, well, I'm doing something for the greater good here, I'm taking me out of a big crime syndicate and therefore it's justified. Uh, but by the same token, you know, it's a very difficult thing just to go and assault someone because, um, you know, they've, they don't like, the, the bikies don't like the way that bloke looks. Um, so yeah, very, uh, very challenging in terms of the, uh, the ethics of, um, of policing working in that type of role. Any close calls that you can remember in terms of people questioning who you were oh many 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 uh one that's the one the one that comes to mind which i think was probably the closest um that uh i was actually threatened in terms of my my life um and i think it was absolutely genuine um well actually as you ask that question a couple of spring to mind so um I'll give you I'll give you this one first, and then I'll, I'll quickly roll on the second one. Um, undercover job uh, with the Rebels Outlaw Motorcycle Gang in Sydney. I'd been deployed from Brisbane to Sydney. Um, informant again was going to introduce me to um, a guy called Alex Vella, who is uh, at the time wasn't the president of the Rebels, but he subsequently became the sort of the Australian head. Um, but this was in the early '90s, um, and they were flogging meth um, out. Uh, or speed as they call it then, uh, out at a compound out in Western Sydney. So I've turned up the compound. Um, uh, sorry, I'll go back one. The uh, the handlers wanted me to wear a wire and I said, look, I don't, I'm not going to do that. I don't know these guys. First time introduction. I don't know what I'm walking, not wearing a wire. I'll just give you a verbal, I'll give you a verbal debrief when I get back. Because it wasn't, a, what were they called, an evidentiary buy? It was just an intelligence buy. Yeah. And so there was no need to record it uh, for, for um, you know, testimony later on. Good call that was because I turned up at the compound, uh, got met by a couple of hairy bikers. They took me into a bit of a side shed, stripped me naked, um, you know, patted me down, did all that sort of stuff. And I thought, okay, cool. I, I, that was a good call. Got away with that one. And then the third guy came over to get me to go and do the deal. And as he was approaching me, I recognized him. I thought, oh, bloody hell. It was a bloke I'd arrested or pinched um, as a detective about two years previously in Brisbane. Uh, his, his name was Splinter. I can't, can't remember his real name. And so even though I looked a bit different, I was pretty edgy at that point because I thought he was going to recognise me. And I was by myself you know, in, a, in, a, in a bikey compound. And he sort of walked up and he did the double take and he goes, 
I know you. I'm thinking, yeah, you do know me, mate. You really do. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and um, he said, where do I know you from? So I took that cue, you know, just that little hesitation. So, mate, weren't we up on the piss together up at uh, AJ's nightclub in Fortitude Valley a couple of years ago, which happened to be the venue where I pinched him. So, you know, he sort of, yeah, I got pinched that night. I go, yeah, I remember. I was trying to get you away from the cops. He goes, oh, mate, look. Anyway, come on in. Yeah, let's let's go do the deal. So it was a, you know, it was a, an example of thinking on your feet quite quickly because that could have been quite nasty. The other one, um, Ollie, was uh, I was undercover with uh, Italian organised crime or mafia, as it's sort of colloquially known. Been introduced again through an informant. We were growing a very large cannabis crop out in Western Queensland, um, and we travelled um, from Toowoomba out to St George. So it's a, uh, you know, to six hour drive into a rural town and for your listeners you know, Australia is a very very big place these are very isolated places and St George itself as a town it's isolated but from there we got in a four-wheel drive we drove about five hours into territory that was pretty wild and I was sitting on the back of the ute uh, and the two Italian um, organized crime guys were in the front and they were chatting I thought amicably, but um, as it turned out, it wasn't so. They'd um, got to a spot, pulled up, grabbed me, tied me to a tree, took a gun out, put it to my head and said, uh, righto, there are, have been leaks in the organisation. Um, guys have been getting locked up. Uh, we're told it's you. Uh, we're about to shoot you, um, bury you out here. No one's gonna, ever going to find you. Uh, so you might as well make peace and uh, let us know that you, you're the you're the dog or the informant. That's a that's an oh f- moment, Raymond. That's not. It wasn't. A, it, wasn't it, 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 <laughs> it really was, and I I'd, um, I I didn't have a firearm with me because um, you know, I was worried about them searching, and I only had the uh, the police issue Ruger, and it's actually it says police issue Ruger on the on the on the revolver. Sure it does. So I, yeah, I thought I better leave that one at home because that one might be a bit of a giveaway. Um, uh, anyway, so I, uh, you know, I, I bluffed it out and um, they eventually accepted that. Um, we stayed on for a couple of days and um, you know, irrigated and laid lines and waited for the seedlings to come up from, from Griffith down in New South Wales. But I genuinely think if I'd coughed up the fact that I was a cop, I would have been shot and buried. It's quite incredible because there is no i spent a large majority of my career in in remote western queensland hungerford out in the southwest up in the northwest and when you're on your own you're on your own and it's it's very hard to describe that often to people as to you're in the middle of nowhere you don't see cars for hours you're talking about communities which have very few people in them. Everybody knows everybody else. So the minute a foreign face comes into the picture, you know, it is the classic, the pub goes quiet when you walk in, everybody's staring at you. What an incredible moment it must have been for you. So it must have been a bit of a relief when you kind of moved away from that environment. Because am I right in saying that following that, or was this previous, you probably have to correct me here, that you spent three years in the QPS's Special Weapons and Operations Squad? Yeah, at the time I did. At the time that was... Um concurrent with a uh, when I was a detective so um, mm. eventually that tactical squad became more permanent and dedicated but at the time um, there wasn't an appetite within the QPS to have a um, a fully dedicated squad so anyone who was working in operational roles could put their hand up uh, go through some grueling 
testing and training and, and um, eventually be part of the tactical squad. And back in the day, you'd walk around with a pager and you know, that you'd be on call to um, to respond to sieges and you know, domestic violence that had turned bad or bank robberies or escapees that has sort of um, you know, high risk profile to them. Uh, I really enjoyed that work. It was um, high adrenaline, you know, high octane, uh, very dangerous, um, but very rewarding. Often considered, if you excuse this terminology, the sexier part of policing, what people stereotypically think SWAT is all about. In Queensland now, it's known as the Special Emergency Response Team CERT. Here in the UK, it's probably best known as SO19, you know, the dedicated firearms officers that cordon and contain the inner cordons, you know, it's a use of firearms to a much higher trained level. It's a fascinating, but equally the training and the uh, the bravery of those individuals that take up those posts is incredible. I'll take my hats off to them. Um, <clears throat> so that kind of covers really the first 15 years of your career, which then led you to leave the QPS in 2000, uh, where you moved across... Uh, as the Asia Pacific Security Advisor to Air New Zealand and what was ANSET Australia, what prompted your move out of policing? You obviously it was it was quite brief, and we'll move on to back when you came back. But you did step out to the private sector quite briefly. Yeah, I did Ollie. I um, you know, I was doing that self analysis as one does, and realised that I joined the cops at twenty one. You know, I was mid thirties uh, at that stage. Had done pretty much every single role in policing. Um, that I'd had wanted to fulfil, you know, worked in uniform, did detective, did undercover work, did the SWAT work, which thought, well, okay, what do I do now? Um, do I just keep doing this, you know, for another 25 years? Uh, and I, I, I really enjoyed it, loved it, still wanted to do it, but I thought I needed to just to take a career break and just go out in the private sector for a couple of years and do something different just to experience that, to diversify my outlook on life. Um, I'd looked at you know, cops that were lifers at 30 odd years. And to me, whilst I respected them, um, I felt that their worldview was quite narrow. Yeah, um, and I, yep, And I didn't want to be like that, even though I, I wanted to continue to serve the public in policing. So I decided to step out and you know, the nearest adjacency is the security industry. Um, and I got an opportunity to jump into um, that security role at ANSET. And that was great. I was enjoying that. Um, but uh, ANSET went into liquidation about 18 months later. So I found myself in an awkward position where I thought, hmm, that wasn't the best career move. But anyway, <laughs> that's, uh, it was a good, good while it lasted. And it was a short stint because uh, you moved straight into the manager of covert operations for the Australian Crime Commission now. Uh, not a lot of people here in the UK or probably outside of Australia will know what the Australian Crime Commission is. Um, they certainly have an idea of covert operations, but um, uh, it is certainly looking at more probably, say, politically exposed individuals, organised crime on a grander scale, often with an international cross-border element to it. Um, but tell us about that particular role. There's probably some areas you can't discuss, but tell us more, more specifically what you were tasked to do. Yeah, in fact, uh, Ollie, your UK listeners uh, might resonate with this, but at the time it was called the National Crime Authority. Mm. Yeah, it subsequently became the uh, the ACIC, the Australian Criminal Intelligence Commission, but that, back then it was the NCA, and it had a very similar role to your NCA, um, other than uh, it wasn't intended as an investigative agency, although it was putting briefs of evidence together against crooks, but... 
the reason for that was a disruptive exercise as opposed to a justice exercise. So the NCA at the time was all about tackling those transnational crime groups operating in Australia, but it was an it was meant to be an intelligence gathering organisation and a disruptive organisation to those types of echelons of crime. And so we would conduct a lot of intelligence gathering operations, some disruption operations, which was my role in the covert side, uh, but there would also be briefs and lockups as part of the disruptive exercise. Um, I, I don't think the model worked particularly well on that stream that I've just described because they seconded cops in to do that work and cops who come from an investigative background think like investigators and it's, it's not a de de detraction from their skills, but that's the way. That, so they ended up doing a lot of um, you know, traditional investigative work and briefs and operations, which is great, you know, some great results, but it sort of moved away from the from the primary mission of the NCA, which was an intelligence collection body. It's an interesting position, which you then moved on and you've spent a majority of the, you know, the, the next part of your career in the Australian Federal Police. So you went back into sworn policing, uniformed work, but then moving into the higher ranks quite quickly as the commander for economic and special operations, Australian Federal Police. Now, there's a significant difference, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, between those, you know, those investigator positions and when you start to take on those senior managerial positions where you're looking very much at strategy, you're looking at budgets, you're looking at human resources, what have you got and how can you deploy it efficiently so that you can meet the needs and expectations of the government of the day? What were some of the challenges for you in those early parts of taking on what were quite significant ranks in the AFP? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and and I'd just come from uh, a couple of years at the NCA in Melbourne, at the cutting edge of you know some really heavy crime stuff. We ended up running some informants and doing some undercover work in a period of time that was known as the gangland killings. There were you know, rival crime groups that were uh, literally every day shooting each other on the street, um, and as a cynical cop. You know, I, I didn't mind because it was doing, you know, they were doing our job for us. They're taking each other out, but we were also the third party in that in that play, taking people out at the same time uh, in terms of lockup. So I, I I got promoted from that position into the AFP uh, into Canberra, which is the bureaucratic capital of Australia, and it's quite a <laughs> bureaucratic uh, city. Uh, you know, it's a bit like the Ottawa's of the world. Uh, it's um, you know, it's a it's a very different, very different lifestyle and context and i landed in economic operations as you say which is all about fraud and tax evasion and money laundering and uh it was quite a stop you know it was a stop of uh of momentum and and that high octane world that i just come from and to your point ollie uh suddenly i'm at a rank where budgets and policy and capability and ministerial engagement and internal stakeholder engagement and um and uh and you know managing very very large teams nationally and internationally so very very different um role description um and as much as i try to still stay close to the um operational side i you know i find myself nosing through warrants and applications for telephone interceptions and reading the grounds for those because I found that interesting because uh, that was my sort of DNA, right? I was like, yeah, this is really good. You know, we're going to lock this guy up here. I'm going to do this. You know, sooner or 
sooner it was sort of I was drawn away from that because I was actually managing the uh, the portfolio as a whole. Um, I enjoyed that, um, but it was an inflection point that a lot of cops go through. This was mine, where you move away from that operational frontline work, even senior supervisory work, into executive management. And that was tough for me because I enjoyed the street work. I enjoyed, enjoyed the operational work. I was good at the administrative and management stuff, but uh, it didn't sort of every single day when I sort of got out of bed excite me to do that. Um, but nonetheless, the reason I, I, I um, persisted with it was because tangibly what was really rewarding for me was suddenly I was in a position where I was able to create capabilities for frontline staff. You know, I had the power to go and see the commission and go, I need $3 million to run an operation. Or, you know, I had the power to go and influence a, a, a legislator to say, hey, listen, we can't do our job because this particular law is prohibitive and we want to change that. What do you reckon? Do Can we put a legislative amendment bid through? And they go, yeah, that sounds really good, Roman. And look, I'm shortcutting this because it's quite a complex process, but mm. being able to drive through a change in a national statute, which allows frontline officers to do their job better, very rewarding. And I, I wanted to talk about your exposure and your experiences with a chap that's probably one of the most highly recognised law enforcement officers in Australia, in Mick Kilty, who was one of the Australian Federal Police's commissioners, and you're, you were appointed his chief of staff, I think, at the rank of assistant commissioner. What were your experiences? I'm assuming that would have taught you quite a lot in terms of preparing you for what would come your future roles, but it must have been a fascinating experience working with such an individual who had had such an impact on policing and law enforcement across Australia. I felt very privileged, um, Ollie. I got handpicked by Mick, um, and I got handpicked over many, many other career AFP uh, officers who could have done that role and have done it equally as well, if not better than me. Uh, I was a newcomer to the AFP, um, arrived as a commander, got promoted to assistant commissioner quite quickly, um, and you know, Mick Kilty selected me to be his chief of staff, which I, I felt was a real privilege. And you're right, um, that opened up my eyes. You know, the scales fell from my eyes in terms of the way policing politics and the intersection between policing and politics works. That was my first real exposure to uh, the external uh, political context of a policing organisation. I'd seen the inside of it, you know, as your listeners are probably many, many of them are, are cops, and you would understand the internecine politics in policing is rough and tumble, and it's it's real and it's live, and you know can get quite nasty. Um, and I was conditioned to that. I you know I'd, I'd grown up in that and adapted to that and participated in it myself. But that insight into the way politics works with policing and enforcement uh, was something that I had a first hand. You know, ringside seat uh, under Mick, and I'd accompany him uh, overseas and up to the Parliament House here nationally, and watched him operate. And uh, I, I absorbed a lot and learnt a lot from Mick. And he and I have stayed friends um, for a long time. To this day, I stay in touch with Mick. Um, I was very grateful for his um, patronage and his mentoring. Because you know, 
it, as you say, it changes quite differently in terms of the strategic approach, especially with the Australian Federal Police in terms of its um, accountability at a national level. You know, you start attending Senate estimate hearings and, and, and being asked some really difficult, tough and, and often challenging questions by our politicians as to what you're doing, often maybe disagreeing, challenging on those strategies. It's a, it's a totally different ballgame in terms of what you're used to as to kind of frontline policing and dealing with the problems of the public. Suddenly you're having to answer questions to the powers that be of uh, the elected government of the day. Yes, and, and, and more, more than that, um, serving the government of the day um, and being responsive to the government of, day, government of the day's policy sounds noble and easy and you, know, you just need to be obedient to that policy. But it's not easy in the political um, context in which we operate because we have you know, different parties and different policy ideologies towards enforcement and policing. And we know as career cops that governments are transitory. Um, you know, they'll be in for a period of time and then the other side might get a go. Um, and Mick taught me that uh, there is a way to be faithful to serving the government of the day, but maintaining enough distance so that you're not contaminated when that government gets turfed out by the constituency and the the other mob gets in and suddenly you know they're looking for a police commissioner or a police executive that is malleable to their ideology and their policy and not tethered to the uh, to the past and you know that is a very delicate exercise and it's very nuanced but it can be done and one of the greatest challenges and I often watch this and I watched a famous exchange between a uh, a rather outspoken senator and a, and, a, and a naval commander within the Australian Navy talk about uh, the powering of submarines. And, and, and where I'm getting to here is just the knowledge base of some of our political entities, understanding what happens behind policing, having to answer questions that are often quite difficult to answer from people that really probably don't quite understand the intricacies of managing police forces, understanding the complexities of crime, responding to those in a way that you think is proportionate, abides by the rule of law and achieves what you're setting out to achieve. So, you know, some often sometimes hidden frustrations in having to deal with the, I suppose, naivety of the job. It's a it's a great point. And, um, you know, most police services around the world at some point have to appear in public uh, in front of parliamentary stakeholders to account for the way they spend the, the budget, the way they deliver policing outcomes. Um, and I, I think that's a great uh, instrument of democracy. And as you may well know, Ollie, uh, those those uh, Senate inquiries or uh, those, those parliamentary panels are made up of different colours of politics, because that's the way parliaments work. Um, and you expect tough questions from those in opposition in, uh, because they're trying to score political points against uh, you know, their, the, the, the government of the day in terms of not providing the police with enough budget or enough legislative power or uh, wrong policy direction, etc. But... The naivety in some of the government members and the way they pose their questions, they mean well because they want, they're trying to give you what we call a Dorothy Dixer, a leading question which allows you to spruik how good we're doing our work and how supportive the government is. But the way those questions are posed in, 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 in not understanding the business policing, they're more difficult to answer than the opposition ones. <laughs> 
it, it's often a challenge which you often watch it's uh, how it carries on can be quite entertaining. Hanson Young. Thank you, Chair, and thank you to Senator Hanson Young for allowing me to just interpose very briefly. I refer to a report in SBS media of the 16th of October that Australia's growing trade with India could increase illicit drug shipments. Uh, Mr Cobley uh, refers to Australia's growing international trade may be increasing opportunities for illegal drug shipments. So firstly, is Border Force aware is concerned that these trade agreements will increase to illegal drug shipments or the risk of doing so uh, given the nature of the agreement and uh, the potential for that increase? Uh, yes, thank you, Senator. Uh, to answer your latter question first, uh, yes, we are aware that the uh, free trade architecture, if you will, uh, may expose us to risk of, uh, of prohibited goods coming from those countries. I, I wanted to now move on to the the year of 2015 to 20, um, sorry, 2010 to 2013, when you were appointed ACT Chief Police Officer, which I suppose my first question is, is that, you know, you suddenly become the top of the Christmas tree, the star at the top of the Christmas tree involved in the day-to-day -day operational policing within Australian Capital Territory, the home of, uh, you know, as you say, our political um, uh, democracy and, and, and everything that goes on with that environment. When did it hit home the magnitude of your responsibility in that position? Um, I don't think there was a single moment, Ollie. Um, you know, I spent three years in that role, and uh, I think it was the day I walked out of it that um, I walked out regretfully because I'd realised that um, all of those things I mentioned earlier about being able to build capability and, and give frontline officers the tools and the and the powers to do their role was something that was really rewarding. It was like, it's very, I, I call um, that sort of community policing where you're directly interfacing with the community every day. You know, it's, re it's real policing. It really is direct policing and you can see the impact that you have every single day. And um, I, I regretted walking out and I walked out for a good reason because I had another big task to fulfill, which we'll probably get into in a moment. But um, I enjoyed that because I got back to my roots. Uh, you know, notwithstanding, I was the chief police officer of the ACT. It's a small police force. Uh, back then, uh, 1,100 staff uh, policing a population of about 365,000 staff in a, quite a contained geographic area. It's essentially a, you know, Canberra, Greater Canberra. Uh, the Australian Capital Territory, of course, is the is the province or the state in which it sits, uh, but essentially it's a big capital city. And um, I would get daily briefings on you know, what happened on the street, uh, you know, incidents overnight or high-profile investigations or events that would be need to be managed. And you know, I'd really enjoy that because it was back to that sort of uh, tactile policing. I'd Regularly, uh, almost every week, I'd uh, take out a car on a Saturday or a Sunday night uh, and by myself and just cruise around and listen to the radio. I'd respond to jobs. Uh, I wouldn't get in the way, of course, because, you know, the last thing I wanted to do was to be that guy. But, um, you know, because I'd, <laughs> I'd been there many times as a young cop, right? The sergeant turns up and tries to take control and you go, mate, I got this, but... Anyway, uh, I didn't want to be that guy, but um, I, I found that the troops appreciated um, the interest 
Um, they appreciated the chance to actually have a face-to-face -face with the boss. Um, you know, a constable talking to a chief police officer is um, you know, not an opportunity they get too often. And when it happens in the context of a, a job on the street at nighttime, you know, I, I, I enjoyed that. And I got a lot of direct feedback, which enabled me to sort of do better things for, for the, the men and women out on the road. So it was a period of time that was um, very, very satisfying. You're listening to part two of my chat with former Australian Border Force Commissioner Roman Quadvelig. In part three, Roman and I chat about the challenges of our work on Operation Sovereign Borders, mine in professional standards on the island of Nauru and his overseeing his entire department's processing of people detained as a result of the operation implemented by the government of the day to tackle illegal arrivals. Arrivals of refugees and asylum seekers who had engaged people smugglers to help them find a better life in Australia. Tragically, this led to many deaths at sea and the Australian government needing to act fast to end this abhorrent trade by the people smugglers. Next on Protect and Serve. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production hosted by Oliver Lawrence. Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley. Produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. This podcast is part of the Acast Creative.